I'm proud to be a Jew, but that's way too Jewish for me. <laughs> Shalom, and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Jeffrey Feingold, author of The Black Hole Pastrami Stories and There Is No Death in Finding Nemo. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. This is the first official 2Jewish radio show of the 2024 calendar year. I must admit, I'm hoping and praying that this next 12 months will prove much better for Israel and the Middle East than the last three months have been. And that goes for Jews all around the world more generally, too. It was exactly three months ago today, of course, October 7, 2023, that the horrific Palestinian terrorist atrocities were perpetrated by Hamas against Israeli communities, kibbutzim, villages, towns, and festival-goers, children, women, men in the south of Israel. Those Palestinian acts of deliberate murder, rape, arson, and torture caused the current Gaza War that has brought so much destruction and devastation. It is tragic, and Israel is compelled to fight until the brutal Islamist Hamas terrorists are destroyed. There will be no joy in victory here, just the knowledge that an awful, essential task has been completed. And it will take at least another couple of months of hard, painful, difficult fighting to accomplish this. 2024 will not begin gently in the Middle East. The Gaza War has also perversely catalyzed anti-Semitism here in America and around the world. As soon as Israel was horrifyingly attacked, those who simply hate Jews came rising out of their swamps and sewers, virulent as ticks seeking blood. Before the bodies of the murdered civilians in Israel had even been identified, haters came forward to blame the Jews for their own deaths. Of course, as soon as Israel fought back and began to seek justice for its slain, a so-called moral outcry began, insisting the Palestinian perpetrators, who had committed legions of war crimes and who were holding hundreds of innocent children, women, and men hostage, could not be attacked since they were hiding behind their own civilians. Deluded people called loudly for the genocide of Jews, particularly on American college campuses. The fallout from these crazed claims that, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, a call for the destruction of Israel and the murder of the seven and a half million Jews living there, those sounds have landed all over our nation. And we Jews, here in this land of freedom in America, have had to watch our backs, as we haven't had to do so in a long time. It's a tough way to begin a year. And yet, in spite of it all, I have hope. I personally believe that Hamas's capacity to repress Gaza and attack Israel 
must be destroyed, as Al-Qaeda and ISIS were destroyed before them. Radical Islamist terrorists cannot make peace with those whom they consider to be infidels and worse. There is only one way for this to end well, well, for it to end at all, and that is with the fall of Hamas, wherever it exists. And with Iran, the sponsor and leader of the terrorist networks all through the Middle East, losing its most favored client terrorists. In addition, I have hope because it's also clear that the ultra-right-wing government of Israel will fall to be replaced by pragmatists who understand that permanent war is not a solution for Israel and Israelis. Only out of the ashes of Gaza will there be the opportunity to rebuild, not with terror tunnels and rocket launchers, but with real schools and hospitals and an economy based on productivity, not on authoritarian brutality, corruption, and terrorism as Hamas is. I don't know how long this will take, but I do know that with Hamas in power in Gaza, it would never be possible. Soon, for some window of time, it may be. Finally, today I'm hopeful in advance of my traveling to Israel in a couple of weeks because this morning is actually my birthday. And birthdays, no matter the circumstances, should be celebrated with joy and especially hope. And so to play us in this morning, here's the classic Israeli song of peace, Shir Le Shalom, sung three years ago in this rendition by young members of the Israel Defense Forces at the memorial service, an annual event for Yitzchak Rabin of blessed memory, the last strong Israeli leader who took bold steps for peace. <laughs> La boker le Hazaka shebat filot otanu lotachzir Mi asher kavanu ube'afanit ma Lo yairo, lo yachziro lecha. Ish otanu lo yashir, mi botach Shir 
That was Shirla Shalom, a song and a prayer for peace. Let us be able to sing songs of love, not war. Let us not say it will come in the distant future. Instead, let us make that peace happen now. Our guest this morning is author Jeffrey Feingold, whose award-winning short story collections are whimsical and very Jewish. That is not to say too Jewish. He joins us in just a moment right here on Too Jewish. Do you know someone who personally made a major difference for the whole Jewish people? An individual who's done important work for Klal Yisrael and deserves to be highly recognized for that effort. As president of the Kohan Memorial Foundation, I'm grateful that the modest cash awards we started more than 10 years ago have grown into a substantial amount of unrestricted funds given to winners with the help of donors like many of you. The foundation, named for my grandparents, Rabbi Samuel S. Kohan and A. Irma Kohan, makes these awards for important service to Klal Yisrael, the entire Jewish people. That service can be in one of four activities, unity, education, creative arts, or rescue. Past Kohan Award recipients are remarkable people who've done outstanding work. If you know someone who qualifies for a Kohan Foundation Award, please go to kohanaward.com, C-O-H-O-N, award.com, and fill out the simple nomination form. That website is kohanaward.com. Nominate an individual or donate yourself. Do it for the whole Jewish people. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish art guests this morning. Jeffrey Feingold is the author of two really quite wonderful short story books, He's uh, a native and an author in Boston. I think you're a native of Boston, right? Um, yeah. And his award-winning debut collection of linked short stories, The Black Hole Pastrami, um, is, uh, as we were saying before we began, extremely Jewish. Um, his new collection is There Is No Death in Finding Nemo. Both have uh, won awards and inspired uh, a lot of attention. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you, Rabbi. Good morning to you. So um, I have to ask, are you a vegetarian? Yes, although um, I'm a pescatarian, I guess, these days. Uh-huh. Um and and on Jewish holidays, none of those rules apply. <laughs> of course, just like on Hanukkah, uh, latkes have no calories or cholesterol. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about the evolution of the, the your first collection, Black Hole Pastrami, um, which seems awfully autobiographical. But you know, maybe that's just my perception. Oh uh, yes, um, it, it is heavily autobiographical. Um, it's a collection of sixteen stories. Um, 
that are all first person except for one. One is second person where the narrator is addressing his daughter. Uh, in the story, um, the second story in the book called Grace. Right. Uh, and the daughter's name is Hannah Grace. And my daughter's name is, name is Hannah Grace. Uh, it's purely coincidental, but. Yes, yes, I'm sure no, no actual human beings were involved in the creation of this book. I changed the names of the other characters, such as my ex-wife in the story. You know, I, I don't know why I forgot to do it for that story, but, um, except for the dogs. The dogs in, uh, play a significant role in a number of the stories. Um, and, and I didn't change the dog names, but uh, so yeah, they are autobiographical. Some of them, such as the title story, uh, in which a young man goes to a, a young vegetarian man goes to a butcher shop to get his dying father a sandwich, uh, uh, in particular a, a black pastrami sandwich, right. and the uh, the black pastrami in the deli case becomes a kind of um, conduit for the narrator to connect with his his past, uh, memories of his father, and then other memories kind of sort of flood in. Um, so that story is, is, you know, that's autobiography. My father did uh, die from cancer a year before my daughter was born. Um, and many of the stories are pretty much told uh, uh, 95, 98% factually. And all of the stories, including the title one, there's, you know, there's some embellishment, but, uh, you know, colors, memories, smells, whatever. But, uh, some of the stories are only probably five or ten percent autobiographical. One of my favorite stories is called the LTD, yeah. in which the narrator, a uh, little boy playing war games, <laughs> trying to defeat the Nazis, uh, gathers his little friends around in Boston and tells them that uh, his father's new car, a Ford LTD, is actually a tank, and they're going to destroy the Nazi fuel depot, which is their elementary school at the end of the street. Uh, the Emily A. Fifield School, which was the name of my elementary school. Um, so that began autobiographically, but really uh, it didn't happen quite the way I told it. So I tell it in the story about the car, uh, about shifting the car into neutral, which you could do back then in yeah. the old days because yep. they didn't have the safety stuff they have now. You could just climb right in as a little kid and shift your dad's uh, transmission selector into neutral, and if you were on an incline, the car would start to roll. Well, all of that happened, Rabbi. And, and those LTDs were kind of built like tanks, actually. They were built days. like tanks. Yeah. What, what's different, though, is that that happened after my parents moved out of Boston into the suburbs, as I described in some of the later stories, like the water witch in which my father is trying to have a well dug, which also happened. So, um, so that happened at their house in the suburbs. And so there was no school at the end of the street. And uh, instead of crashing into the school and exploding dramatically as in the story, the car kind of rolled down the suburban grass and came to a gentle halt. Thank God. So I did roll out, though, as described in the story. So so some of them uh, started as little autobiographical memories and stories I told my daughter many times over the years, and some of them are even much more highly biographical than that. What, what brought the book about, though, I grew up wanting to be a writer all through even high school and even early college and thinking I would be a writer and Somehow ended up becoming an accountant and businessman. That's probably a discussion for another podcast episode. And decades go by, and I find myself sitting here in the first spring of the pandemic, thinking, as we all did, what if that next pizza box delivery is, you know, carrying the germ? And, yeah, uh, killing us. My last meal, yep. what do I have to leave my daughter? And, you know, I thought all I have is these stories that I've been telling her off and on over the years, and I decided to put them down on paper. 
And so it really started, uh, as I describe in one of the stories in the book called um, The World of Tomorrow, which is a story about my father and about wanting who was an inventor, and I didn't have any of his inventions. I had the pleasure of playing with them, so many of them when I was growing up, but they'd all disappeared before my daughter was even born, and feeling like I don't have anything physical I can give her from her grandparents, um, and wanting to put these stories down as a bit of a legacy, and that's really how the writing started, and uh, it 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 it, it, moved, it morphed from there quite a lot, as you'll see. Or you know, I know you mentioned the second book. Um, uh, little some of those stories are somewhat autobiographical, but some of them have absolutely nothing to do with me or my family at all. So, but it all it all started with a wish to leave my daughter some stories. Some of the stories you'd been telling her, yeah. We will talk much more with Jeffrey Feingold, the author of two wonderful collections of short stories. When we come back in a moment, here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services Friday night and and Saturday morning, Youth and Adult Education Academy courses every week, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school is available for school-aged children and grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Friday night, services are at 6.30 p.m., always followed by a delicious Oneg Shabbat with homemade challah. Saturday morning, Torah studies at 9 a.m., and services are at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. If you can't come in person, go to our Facebook page, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson. All of our musical services are available in person and virtually. Our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. Sign up for our Hebrew Marathon. Learn Hebrew in just two days, January 14th and 15th. More information about Beit Simcha to attend services, our great religious school and Torah text programs, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation High School programs, rich array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520 520- Two seven six five six seven five. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, at Beit Simcha, fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you've got a question, comment, comment, or criticism, McFetrick Fell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's 
T-O-O Jewish Radio 18 at gmail.com or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating, review 2Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. And, uh, you know, happy secular new year. <laughs> we spoke last week, you having just returned recently from a trip all the way around the world, including to Singapore, about what, what are often referred to as the Baghdadi Jews, the uh, two extremely important and influential families, Kaduri and Sassoon, who were so influential, not only in the development of uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, but uh, as you mentioned, which I didn't know at all, um, in kind of the modernization of a lot of things in um, contemporary People's Republic of China. I did want to mention when I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago, officiating for the High Holy Days and Sukkot and so on, I had a, a very interesting view of that Jewish community. They talk about it not as though it were one contiguous Jewish presence in China, because there was one going back to the Silk Road days, the Kaifeng Jewish community, and then they talk about how that kind of disappeared, and then the 19th century, the Iraqi Jews came, and that's where the Bund was founded in Shanghai, really at the inspiration of those Jews from Baghdad, and then how that disappeared in the revolutionary period, and then the, or actually in the early parts of the 20th century, and then the Shanghai ghetto, the Jews coming from Germany and Austria who escaped to Shanghai and found a community there. And then after Mao's takeover, that community disappeared, and now there's sort of an expatriate community. It's really an interesting discontinuity of Jewish communities in the same place. Just a very interesting 
kind of development, not not I think mirrored in other places in the same way. Right. So there's really no such thing as quote unquote Chinese Jews. There are various Jewish communities that have been present in China over the past at least thousand years. Right. Going back right. at least as far as the Silk Route. And I remember being in Xi'an, which is the place where the terracotta warriors yeah. are, and. In the old city, you could be in the old city of Jerusalem. There are bazaars, and also you see what looks to our eyes like Arabic script. It's in fact Uyghur, which is a Turkic language, also written from right to left, as, by the way, is the Maldivian language. Huh. It's by, well, probably by Arab traders or something. Urdu. Oh, Urdu. No right. kidding. Right. A lot of words in Maldivian are recognizable to me because they have Turkic roots. So Urdu is a Turkic language and Turkish is a Turkic language. Of course. And I've had a lot of exposure to both. So it was funny how much of, like, couldn't get every word, but the gist of a conversation between two local staffers, I could follow. Wow. It was amazing. Well, your linguistic skills are remarkable. As you know, the sort of different Jewish communities that happened to be in China at different times. We talked last week in, in terms of the Baghdadi influence on all of that, right? And the highly successful businesses they were able to set up were were trading empires, right? But also financial ones. What remains behind is some of the charity they did, but also um, it, it's so interesting. Like I did uh, Rosh Hashanah morning services in what's now a museum because you can't officially have a synagogue right. in China. Judaism right. is not a recognized religion, quote unquote, uh, in communist China. But that building was built and then I'm pretty sure restored with money that came primarily from those same Baghdadi Jews. Right. So, I mean, first of all, these guys eventually, I'm not sure this was true at the very beginning when they first arrived in China, but there were a number of Baghdadi families that did trading with the eastern parts of the British Empire. They developed trading along the coast of India, in Singapore, along the coast of China, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a whole network which helped them grow and expand because they could depend on their co-religionists particularly because many of their family members were still in Baghdad, so they knew where they lived. You know, they knew where they came from. I know your address. These guys eventually came to see themselves as Brits first, Jews second, Baghdadis third. And many of them got knighthoods and other titles um, and various honors from the British Empire because they did a lot of good for the prestige of the British Empire, particularly in terms of their vocational schools, their training of not only Jews, but young Chinese, their care for the poor when there was a plague or an epidemic or something. They were... Hospitals um, too, I should know. Yeah, they were just amazingly generous. And it's true that they could afford it, but not everybody who can afford to be generous is Is equally generous generous or equally imaginative and responsive to the community's needs. We should note also, you mentioned earlier that the, the first... Head of Singapore, uh, well, prime she, minister, first prime minister of Singapore once it achieved independence from the British Empire was Jewish. Yeah, Singapore has always had a thriving Jewish community, which had mostly again Baghdadi roots, but then expanded, and now it's a bit of everyone. I mean, you know, Singapore is a city of skyscrapers, and all the major financial institutions in the world have a branch there where they 
sort of haze young associates and train them. <laughs> and if they can survive two years in the really busy, frenetic atmosphere of Singapore, they can survive anywhere. So a number of those people who run those companies are Jewish from all over the world. And there is a thriving Jewish community in Singapore today. Thanks, Tom. We will uh, continue our far-flung journeys next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. This guy goes to his rabbi and says, Rabbi, I think my wife is trying to poison me. The rabbi says, I'll go talk to her. The rabbi returns and tells the guy, I just spent three hours talking to your wife. The guy asks, so what should I do? And the rabbi answers, take the poison. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of Too Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. Maybe keep the antidote handy, though. You know, a classic Jewish comedian died last week. Shecky Green was 97 years old. He, in a way, embodied that incredibly strong tradition of Jewish stand-up comics. But I come from that kind of a Yiddish background, you know, like uh, somebody says, you look great. What do you mean I look great? I didn't look great yesterday. Shecky Green, in his career, helped save not one, but two Las Vegas hotel casinos with his act. He headlined on the Strip back in the 1960s at the then unheard of fee of $100,000 a week for years. Shecky Green worked his way up in comedy, a Chicago guy in a New York world. His ear for dialect, his genuine singing talent, served him well in his many years in show business. Well, decades. He was just about the last of the old generation. Alav HaShalom, may he rest in peace, or at least may he get the same laughs in heaven he got for so long here on earth. And now a word of Torah. This week we continue the narrative of the truly greatest story ever told, the tale of God and Moses liberating our people from slavery and bringing them to freedom. Our portion of Vaera continues the dramatic showdown between Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and God. It is filled with the supernatural. God brings plagues on Egypt that cause untold suffering, not just to lordly Pharaoh, but to ordinary folks living everyday lives. The stakes rise continually in a narrative that builds in power. Plagues strike one after the other. Several times, Pharaoh agrees to free the Israelites, only to repeatedly welsh on the deal. At the end of Vaera, we sense that it's all building to a climax, which we will see in next week. Even more dramatic tale, the actual exodus from slavery to freedom. In our own time, we have seen the might and terror of natural disasters, the awesome destruction of volcanic eruptions and tsunamis, the overwhelming wildfires that burn up much of a continent. We understand our own powerlessness in the face of such destruction. Without comparing the divine role in each natural disaster, we can still understand the message of our portion. We are not the ones in control. That power and command belong only to God. When Pharaoh rails against that simple fact, he foretells our own contemporary need to pretend that we are the ones really in charge. But it's simply not so. When we, like Moses, acknowledge God's power and control over nature, 
we come to understand that it's all really in God's hands, we, also like Moses, can focus on doing the things that we do have the power to accomplish. Caring for the sick, helping the needy, consoling the bereaved, taking care of the environment of our world, seeking justice in our nation and the world. When we return in a moment on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Jeffrey Feingold, explores the ways that taste and scent and other things can make writing evocative. And of course, in his case, Jewish. Learn all about it when we return in a moment on to Jewish. We continue with our to Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. After months of controversy, Harvard University President Claudine Gay finally resigned last week in the wake of further plagiarism allegations and extensive justified criticism of her weak response to anti-Semitism at Harvard. Gay is the second Ivy League University president to step down following congressional testimony on campus anti-Semitism last month that drew intense disapproval. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned back on December 9th, and now her Harvard colleague Gay has joined her. Gay initially faced criticism over the school's statement on Hamas's October 7th invasion of Israel. Critics, well, smart people, called the statement tepid. That is very weak, particularly in the wake of a letter from a coalition of Harvard student groups that blamed the murderous October 7th Palestinian terrorist attack on Israel. The Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, that is, has also opened a civil rights investigation into a reported instance of a Jewish Harvard student targeted on campus. At the hearing before Congress, Claudine Gay, like McGill and Sally Kornbluth of MIT, could not say that advocating the genocide of Jews violated any college code or even was categorically wrong. In spite of that, soon after the congressional testimony, the university's trustees, the Harvard Corporation, voiced its support for Gay's continued leadership. On December 13th, the board again issued a statement backing her and appearing to curb speculation that she would resign. But instead, Gay, the first black president in Harvard's history, will also become its shortest tenured. She served just over six months. In addition to her handling of anti-Semitism, she was also under fire as allegations of plagiarism emerged about her research papers. A new wave of plagiarism accusations surfaced last week, highlighting alleged plagiarism in her doctoral dissertation itself. Harvard provost Alan Garber, who is Jewish, will serve as the school's interim president, the Harvard Corporation has announced. In November, Garber said he had regrets about his school's initial response to the October 7th attack, as well anyone should. Gay's final statement read, It has become clear that it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign, so our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Gay referenced the allegations against her, but did not apologize for them. She wrote that she had been subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Could be. Criticism of Gay mounted following the December 5th congressional hearing, of course, where she, McGill, and MIT President Sally Kornbluth said that calls for the genocide of Jews do not necessarily violate their school's codes of conduct. 
At the hearing, Gay testified that on-campus calls for intifada are personally abhorrent to me, but stopped short of saying they violated the university's rules. Instead, she, like the other presidents, said such matters were dependent on context. When speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies, including policies against bullying, harassment, or intimidation, we take action and have robust disciplinary processes that allow us to hold individuals accountable, she said. That answer drew bipartisan rebuke, including from a number of lawmakers who are Harvard alums such as New York Republican Representative Elise Stefanik, who asked the original question. Gay later apologized for her testimony. Her resignation was welcomed by a vocal contingent of Jewish Harvard students, alumni, and donors who pushed to hold the Ivy League University accountable for her testimony for what they say is an unsafe campus environment for Jewish students. Bill Ackman, a Jewish alum and billionaire hedge fund investor, had been among the more prominent voices calling for Gay to step down. Other Jewish donors pledged to reduce their giving to $1 annually in protest, or only to donate to Jewish groups on campus. In other news, a top Hamas leader was killed in Beirut, along with two other leaders of the terror group, as tensions on the Israel-Lebanon border continued to escalate. Salah al-Aruri, Hamas's deputy leader, was killed last week in an attack led by drones in the Lebanese capital. He was believed to be an architect of Hamas's October 7th atrocity attack in Israel. He was responsible for the group's expansion in the West Bank, including some of its attacks there. Multiple sources attributed the blast to Israel, which has not officially commented. A senior American defense official said that Israel was responsible, and Denny Danon, an Israeli lawmaker from the Likud party, wrote that Israel conducted the attack. Okay, seems pretty obvious. I congratulate the Israel Defense Forces, the Shin Bet, the Internal Security Service, the Mossad, and the Security Services on taking out senior Hamas official Salah al-Aruri in Beirut, Danon said. Whoever was involved in the October 7th massacre should know that we will get them and settle scores. Al-Aruri, the deputy chair of Hamas's political bureau, was released from an Israeli prison in 2010 and took up a role leading Hamas from abroad. Most of their leaders actually are abroad. In addition to his focus on the West Bank, he fostered ties between Hamas and Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror group that has been... Well, sparring with Israel on the northern border following the October 7th atrocities. In other Israeli news, in Jerusalem, the Israeli Supreme Court struck down a law that limited its power, an unprecedented decision nixing the one piece of legislation passed under the right-wing government's effort to, well, defang the judiciary. The 8-7 decision published last week returns the fight over Israel's court system to the front after a months-long pause due to Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. Prior to Hamas's October 7th brutalities in Israel, debate over the government's judicial overhaul had divided Israel, leading to massive protests and civil disobedience over Netanyahu's bid to undermine Israeli democracy. Amid that civil strife, the government passed a law back in July removing the Supreme Court's ability to strike down government decisions it deemed unreasonable, a power used sparingly but used in the past as a check on executive power. The law was an amendment to one of Israel's semi-constitutional basic laws. It passed without a single vote from the opposition parties. The court heard challenges to it later in the year. 
Last week's decision by the Supreme Court marks the first time it has ever struck down a basic law. While the specific law struck down by a narrow majority, 13 of 15 justices wrote that the court does possess the authority to strike down basic laws. In the final decision, former Chief Justice Esther Hayud wrote that the law was extreme and irregular. It departs from the foundational authorities of the Knesset, and therefore it must be knocked out. The decision moves Israel closer to a potential constitutional crisis, scenario in which a country experiences an unsolvable dispute between two branches of government, of course, but it does so at a delicate moment. Prior to the court decision, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu had not said explicitly that his government would obey a court ruling striking down the law. Ministers in the government immediately criticized the decision, of course, as well as the court's decision to publish it during wartime. Netanyahu's Likud party called the decision unfortunate, said the court should not have ruled on an issue at the heart of the societal disagreement in Israel when IDF soldiers from right and left are fighting and endangering their lives. The decision of the Supreme Court judges to publish the decision during wartime is the opposite of the spirit of unity needed these days for the success of our soldiers on the front, wrote Justice Minister Yariv Levin, an architect of the judicial overhaul effort, that is the judicial coup. In practice, the judges have taken all of the authority, which in a democratic regime is split in a balanced way between three branches of government. Israeli politicians on the center and left celebrated the Supreme Court decision. Yair Lapid, leader of Israel's Knesset parliamentary opposition, wrote, The source of the state of Israel's strength, the basis of Israeli power, is the fact that we are a Jewish, democratic, liberal, law-abiding state. The Supreme Court faithfully performed its duty to protect Israel's citizens. Benny Gantz, leader of the centrist National Unity Party and a member of the Emergency War Cabinet, wrote, The court decision must be respected. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews around the world. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, Jeffrey Feingold, is a Boston writer, a very Jewish writer, I have to say, from the stories. Um, he has two terrific collections uh, of short stories out. The first is called The Black Hole, Pastrami, uh, which has been um, nominated and has won some awards. And his new book is called There Is No Death in Finding Nemo. Um, we were talking about the origins of your stories, which start out with your own um, <clears throat> really kind of autobiographical stories. And then, as you mentioned, uh, you, you started writing them down so that your daughter would get some of these stories from you um, and have them always. And then, you know, as a writer, things sometimes go other directions. Um, I have to say, this is, uh, particularly the first book is so Jewish because food plays such an important role, not just in the title story. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Yes, well, you know, it's interesting. Of course, food is so powerful, right? We particularly smells as much as taste, if not more than taste. Sure. It's all linked together. Sure. So that second story, I think it's the second story in the book, is called Nowhere, Amanda. The open story is the title story of Black Hole Pastrami. The next right. story, Nowhere, Man, is also an autobiographical story. It sounds so fanciful. You know, as if I'd made it up, uh, the narrator is just driving somewhere, as he said, uh, from nowhere to nowhere, you know, selling something, um, driving some nameless uh, nondescript uh, rental car and, and ends up in some 
not very good motel <laughs> in the middle of cornfield. Yeah, sounds awful, actually. <laughs> Turns on the TV. And there's Yitzhak Perlman making salami and eggs. Yeah, well, that actually happened. You know, I, <laughs> I do make things up. <laughs> there are things like the mirror, the magical mirror and the second book, which is completely made up. But in this case, I didn't make that up. Many years ago, I was that traveling salesman. And, um, and, and, it had, and my father had died some number of years before and uh, as had so many aunts and uncles and you know who I also some of them I describe in the book like the sugar thief my aunt Millie well they're all gone right and um, I had been you know getting further and further disconnected from my Jewish uh, roots for a number of reasons and driving along and uh, and also from just my family you know and I turn on the TV and there is an episode of the frugal gourmet and I'd like the show uh, I used to watch the show Uh, this is back when you know, it was just broadcast TV and a bit of cable. And anyway, uh, there's this very white Norwegian cook, Jeff Smith, the frugal gourmet, and he has Yitzhak Perlman, the great Israeli violinist on as a guest, and they were both making foods from their youth. And when Yitzhak Perlman, and, you know, uh, uh, the frugal gourmet makes a plate of white foods, bland, you know, lutefisk, which is white fish soaked in lye. And yeah. Horrible, by the way. <laughs> disgusting. I, I don't understand why it's food, but never mind. And he's kind of quiet and almost, I wouldn't say shy, but and there's Yitzhak Perlman, and he has big, bushy, uh, you know, black uh, uh, sideburns and big crop of bushy black hair and glasses and a booming baritone voice, and he's loud and wonderful, and, and he starts to make, you know, salami and eggs, and he puts a little schmaltz in the pan and explains what that is, and I'm riveted to the TV at that point. And then, uh, then he puts a slice of, or slices of salami in the pan. And Rabbi, I could taste it through the television. <laughs> it was like I was having the meal. I hadn't even thought about salami and eggs for many, many years. My father loved it and used to make it all the time. And as a kid, of course, I detested the smell. <laughs> and in the story, I talk about it reminding me of the smell of, you know, the old country and barns and, and pogroms, I think you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how I thought it was grody. Well, now it's decades later, and, and uh, um, uh, I can just smell it through the television, and it sort of carries me back to a memory of earlier days with when I when all those family members were alive, and we had large satyrs and lots of noise and food and music, and so it kind of kind of goes on from there. What I don't describe in the story, maybe I should have, is the very next day I got home, I went to the market and got salami eggs so I could make it and uh, and actually eat it and not just taste it through the television. You know, there's something about the olfactory sense, as you know, like the smell just kind of, uh, maybe it's the closest to the aspects of our brain that bring up memory, but it is the most evocative of all the senses, even more so than taste. And you utilize that really beautifully in both books, I'd say. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, my daughter is 20, uh, the daughter that I describe in the yeah, book. Yeah, the eight-year-old daughter is no longer eight. She's no longer eight. She's now 28. And she was just over recently, you know, to have Hanukkah here. And, of course, you know, Lucky's and sour cream and applesauce. That's a debate probably for another podcast, I know. But um, <laughs> bagels and cream cheese and lox. You know, I have all those foods. And that's what she wants. She doesn't want to come over and have lasagna on, on Hanukkah. <laughs> so, you know, it's... <laughs> Kind of like leaving the books for her and the stories, trying to also just create those what will hopefully be good memories for her, you know, when I'm no longer here. I don't know why this should seem Jewish, but it does. There's a sort of, I don't want to say melancholic, but you have a kind of um, 
there's a sadness I, I think that troops through all, all of your stories. I don't know if that's fair. Uh, not most of them anyway. Well, oh, thank you, Rabbi. I think that is fair. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a very fair assessment. I mean to cut you off. So. No, that's okay. I'm I'm just wondering about that. Maybe it's because I think great literature always has some of that. Uh, tell us a little bit about about that. Yeah, it's hard to get to be older and to look back and not. Have, I mean, hopefully some happiness and joy as well, but not to have periods of. Uh, of sadness or longing, you know, the regret expressed in these books and many stories and in many of the stories in the, in the black hole pastrami, some of them are just purely crazily humorous as well. Like the one about my father and the well, <laughs> but, um, right. you know, the, the narrator, the, 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 um, the framework for the book, it's not just that they're first person stories. It's really written intentionally to be someone today, presumably middle-aged looking back, right? to his early childhood and early adulthood. And there are many happy and funny moments as described in the book, but there are also, there's also death and disease and loss and lost relatives, right? Um, one of the things I, I hope makes the book Jewish is that there's soft humor in, I think, every single story, even in the title story, which many folks have told me, you know, they had to go and stuff and get a handkerchief partway through. Aww. But, uh, yeah. You know, there's there's uh, some humor in that story as well, which I think hopefully softens the poignancy and the, the sadness. Um, so I think that that's a very Jewish Jewish humor. I, I think that's a very Jewish thing. But even Jewish humor, I, I think, so often is tinged with that little bit of of sadness or melancholia or irony. You know. So I wanna I wanna talk about uh, a story in the new collection. And I don't know, collection is the right term, because they're kind of often linked stories, but not entirely. And there's no death in Finding Nemo. You have uh, a, f- a fairly long story called Avram's Miracle. Um, oh, yes, I love that one. It, it's terrific. That Naturally, I hit on it because the rabbi plays such a prominent role in the story. <laughs> but tell us about the evolution of that, because it's wild. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I loved writing that story. I think it's probably my favorite story in the book. I based Avram on me. Uh, it's completely a fictional story. In that story, a young, uh, headstrong uh, baker who's also an inventor invents this miraculous machine that uh, can make wheat, and he uses it to make a box of matzah, and, uh, and, and it threatens the powers that be in the, uh, in the powerful um, M- matzah bakery world, actually, which which for some reason is located in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I lived for a couple of years, by the way. So, oh, oh okay. Well, it turns out that uh, one of the two um, matzah manufacturers in the United States, and the and the largest one, is in Cincinnati. No okay. kidding, huh. and that's why I based it there. As as is the largest, the headquarters for the largest grocery chain uh, in in America as well. Kruger's. Kruger's, yeah. No, Kruger's, yeah. That I did know. Cause, but, uh, and that's also, by the way, where all of the institutions of the reform movement originally were located, uh, later relocated mostly. But uh, anyway, so go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, oh, that's okay. Well, how the story started, it actually, the germ of the story is really simple, that simply this. I, for some reason, said to my uh, partner and girlfriend uh, one day, I have this story idea. I don't even know where it came from. I sort of woke up with it one day. I said, wouldn't it be a great story if a young Jewish man invented a potion such that if you drank it, it turned you Jewish. <laughs> and he thought he would just put it in the town water supply <laughs> or, the, or the municipal water supply and turn everyone Jewish, and then everybody would get along. Uh, and um, Cle- Clearly you haven't spent enough time in the organized Jewish world. 
She thought that that would be too politically fraught. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I kind of like it, but go ahead. Maybe that's in your next collection. So go on. Now, and this was before the the current war. And yeah, the of course. She thought that it would still be very difficult to get anyone to publish. So, <laughs> um, so um, I changed it for whatever reason I came up with. I don't remember how I came up with it, with this idea that he's a baker and he invents this marvelous muscle-making machine. Um, and so that's how it started. I also, when I write a story, I have to have two things. I have to have an idea. Um, not all, but most center around a, one key pivotal element of magical realism. In this case, it's the Matza making machine. But I also need to have a character, at least one character in mind. I have to be able to see that person in my head to some extent. And in this case, I based Avram on me. He's not me, but I based him on me because I'm blonde and blue-eyed. And when I was growing up, as does Avram, I was often teased. Uh, about, you know, are you really a fine gold, you know? And in the story, I took it from there. Uh, now, this never happened to me in real life, but I sort of, in the story, took it from there with Avram thinking, well, if I'm not a cantor, that was the surname, of course, of Avram in the story, yep. then, and if I'm adopted, then how do I even know if I'm Jewish? And uh, things kind of go off from there. But that's how it started. It started with the idea of the magical realism element. Then somehow I thought, well, well I'll put myself in there. <laughs> I have a picture of myself when I was a young teen, early early man, with my two sisters on either side. I'm sort of higher, the tire powering over them in the middle, and I'm blonde as a towhead with a white shirt that says Swedish Sweden on it, and I and I look more like a Swedish exchange student than a Jewish American. So I kind of put all that in the story. It's, Everybody keeps telling Avram that he looks more Swedish than Jewish. I don't know. I grew up in a family of blonde, blue-eyed Jews, so who knows the. Two collections, Jeffrey Feingold's, are Black Hole Pastrami and There's No Death in Finding Nemo, which we didn't even get to talk about. Jeff, where can people go to find out more about you and to find out more about the books? Um, I have a website with a lot of info about me and about the, and with links to where you can get the both books from either the publishers or uh, Amazon. It's just my name, jeffreyfeingold.com. Or you can just go right to Amazon and type my name in, and the books will, or the all the titles of the books. They are terrific, and and by the way, uh, also just easy re- easy to read and um, lovely books. Thank you so much, and I look forward to what comes next. Thank you so much, Rabbi. It was it was so much fun talking with you. Me too. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Julie Benko, Jewish Broadway star of the new musical Harmony. Please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each Friday night for services in Onig Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out today comes from Israel. It's the powerful Habaita, Home, a song from the concert urging the world to bring home the 140 or so Israeli hostages still held cruelly by Hamas underneath Gaza. The song was written by Ehud Manor. It was performed last week by a thousand musicians in Caesarea's historic amphitheater. My friends, may you have a Shavuotov, a good week, a healthy week. In a week, we pray profoundly of justice and peace. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.